0: Well, this evening we're going to have a little adventure in symbolism. in a to try to clarify a that many books could be written about. In the first of this series of discussions, that alchemy was at least to a degree a breaking forth of the spirit of mysticism, which had been blocked in the hearts and minds of three Renaissance men. The breakdown of the tremendous domination of the aristocracy and the clergy resulted in the beginning of a motion towards intellectual liberty. And in the transition period, we had about two centuries in which mystical movements developed and expanded in an astonishing manner. We know that that these movements came directly from a movement within man himself. And in this we come to a very important and interesting problem. How does the human being think? Does he think in words, in pictures, or in your ideas. I think we learn from the study of persons changing languages that a great many human beings think in words. And we know, for example, that in the study of language you must labor along a difficult and unfamiliar path until you begin to think in the language which you are studying. And then suddenly the words become meaningful and available. I know persons who have lived in this country for many years who speak in decline as well, but in a hurry they will count in their native language. Therefore there is a certain association between thought and words. It is probable that the intellectualist thinks in the terms of words because he uses them constantly are a familiar instrument of self-expression is It is also quite possible that the artist, the purely aesthetic individual, may think in form, or in color, or even in tone, as in the case of a musician. Thus the origin of thought patterns may differ with different persons. And the basic chemistry of thought probably differs also in the male and female. Thus, we are confronted with an intricate issue of the basic form of ideas within ourselves. Studies in anthropology and ethnology lead us to the recognition of the universality of certain essential emblems and figures. I had another yesterday, which strange enough to report, I answered today. <laughs> so, not very often happens, relating to a tomb recently discovered at Palenque in uh, uh, Mexico, in Chiapas. Palenque is one of the old centers of the Maya culture. This tomb was the physical remains, mostly dust of some ancient dignitary of the Empire. And in the disintegrating and religious state of the mortal remains of Mans, this person, it was noted that in one hand of the deceased had been placed a small sphere of Jadak and in the other hand a small cube of Jadak. There are also many other ornaments of precious and semi-precious materials. let letter ask why those two gigantic ornaments should have been associated with the dead. Well, there are several possibilities. The Cuban sphere was very associated with architecture. And uh, similar things were found within certain of the pyramids in Egypt. They were used for the simple process of laying the foundations. And the builder was not sure whether his levels were clear and right. He would stand a cube on a flat place on his wall, place to stay on top of it. If it rolled off, then he had another level foundation. Now this peculiar relationship caused these <laughs> the little instruments to be associated with the craft of buildings. We have an remnants of them today in the Son the Square. The compass makes a circle, and the square <coughs> makes a cube. So we're back again to the concept of the sphere and the cube. One representing the sphere, life, spirit, consciousness. The cube, matter, body, earth. <coughs> but that these should be placed in the hands of this deceased aristocrat of the old Maya Empire, May have been one of several things. Perhaps he was a priestly architect, buried with the insignia of his profession, because architecture was an important craft in art among these people. Perhaps he was a priest philosopher architect, one who had received the proper recognition as a master builder <coughs> of men, or a custodian of truths. Perhaps he was an ancient symbol. That the body returns to the earth from which it came, the human, and the spirit returns to down gave it, the sphere. Certainly, however, these symbols were there. They are in China. They are in India. They are in Egypt. They are in Greece. They are among all American Indians. Why these symbols? There <coughs> are two possible possibilities and explanations. One, the migration of the symbol itself and some remote more certain basic cultures so that have now perished were much more, more broadly disseminated around the earth than we realize. And as we follow certain migrations, such as the bone arrow migration, or the swastika migration, we find these symbols traveling with the motions of people from the primitive world, passing from one culture group to another. The second possible explanation lies in the internal development of man himself, by which consciously or unconsciously, he creates symbols which have an essential identity, which have an essential consistency, and when he thinks about certain things, he always thinks of the same symbols, regardless of where he is or to what culture he may belong. Therefore, symbolism may arise with the unfolding human culture, the symbols are same or essentially similar may appear at many different places, because unfolding human beings reach certain cultural levels. And when they reach these levels, they'll instinctively release these symbols through themselves. Now <coughs> well, this has an interesting meaning for us, because in our present consideration, alchemy, we find the greatest conglomeration of symbols that were ever probably brought together in the service of a single idea of doctrine, science, or art. Yet these symbols are not essentially original with alchemy. There is perhaps not a single symbol in alchemy that can be traced directly to the period in which it began to flourish in that museum. <laughs> these symbolisms are derived from practically every previous culture that man developed. From Egypt, from Greece, Rome, India, China, all of these ancient systems use the same symbol. It makes very little difference whether it is the dragon of Alchemy, or the dragon of St. George of Cappadocia, or the dragon of China. These dragons are all the same. The same way be said of the unicorn, or of many other similar devices, the double-headed eagle, for example. Which occurs in so many, many places. <coughs> the symbolism of fire and of water and of earth and of the elements does not belong to alchemy, but alchemy make use of it. So we are in a more or less peculiar situation. We are trying to explain why certain symbols became associated with a cult or a sect of persons engaged in a particular art or science. Certainly there is nothing in the subject of chemistry itself which suggests such a phantasmagoria of devices. And modern chemistry, with great efficiency, depends almost entirely upon comparatively elementary mathematical symbols. Yet in this age, in the 16th and 17th centuries, we have some of the most magnificent manuscripts ever illuminated uh, by the human hands not of the quality of the great works of art which precede them but of a fantastic imagery which gives them a dynamic <coughs> a significance and importance causes them to be one of the most valuable and prized group of manuscript materials <coughs> why? let's assume for a moment <coughs> for what we must assume at this time. that alchemy was, as its name implies, a divine kind of chemistry. Man had here for the truth which he had long held with veneration, but had never explored. And that truth was that each art and science is dependent upon a great pattern of universal laws for its validity. These laws <laughs> are infinitely repetitive in nature. Da so Vinci in his aesthetic canon shows how the body is composed of an infinite repetition of certain basic forms. Knowledge is composed of an infinite repetition of basic patterns on various levels. Alchemy devise the belief or develop the belief that the laws governing chemistry were identical with the laws governing every other phenomenon in nature. That to understand chemistry to its very source was to understand creation. That creation and chemistry were intimately related. That man is a chemical formula and an alchemical mystery, that the human body is not only composed of chemical elements, but contains within itself a being composed of alchemical elements. What is true of the body on one level is true of the soul on another. And the entire economy of human life is a tremendous formula. <coughs> a formula that may be traced under certain conditions. A to an art, it itself a kind of catalyzing agent. We know that Battle-Evangel Swedenborg was led to his own inner, mystical, and spiritistic experiences through the study of mathematics. Mathematics <laughs> opened in him something. And to another group, chemistry, Open suddenly, through concentration upon the rules and principles of chemistry, the chemist gradually became internally a perceptive of something beyond the subject under consideration. He released something through himself, and that which he released came to his objective consciousness in the form of symbols as is still the case so frequently, in the releases of various subjective pressures in dreams. As you have pointed out, all alchemical symbols are found in dream symbolism also. And they are found in the dreams of persons who have the slightest concept of what alchemy is, and perhaps have never in their lives seen an alchemical symbol. Yet of themselves, their dreams took these very same forms. And we are led, therefore, to the implication that certain forms are archetypal, that they rest in the collective unconscious of our race, that they are part of something, as we may say, that that is larger than we are. And we find these symbols occurring in three ways. We find them coming through in dreams. We find them coming through in esoteric arts and sciences, in journalism. and we find them coming through in folklore, tradition, and legend. Always the same symbols. Legendary is a kind of symbolism emerging from man himself, who traces his own origin beyond the objective into a subjective, and in this tracing goes back into a layer of symbolism within his own nature. Now we have in the Arabian Nights Entertainment a kind of romantic picture <laughs> which could well look like a leaf from an alchemical manuscript. We have in the legends of the age of chivalry, of the Greeks, of the Egyptians, of the Hindus, the Chinese, the appearance of, men, of mysterious, <coughs> fantastic creatures and beings. We also immediately fall upon one of the most common of all these symbols, and that is the hero. The mysterious being possessed of supernatural power, but not a god. Where would folklore be without the hero? Where would the story of the Aladdin's lamp be without Aladdin and the land? Where would the wanderings of Sindad the Sailor lead to without their mysterious complications? Or Homer's story of the wanderings of Odysseus? <coughs> Always these, these hero legends involve transcendental powers, demons, saints, gods, godlings, and a hero with magic instruments, a shield of strength, a sword that soothes. A, a corner of invisibility. All these things are part of fairy stories, legendary and lore. They are all diffused, diffused, diffused and diversified throughout the entire structure of human society. Now we may say, why did the alchemist hit upon this peculiar fantasy of symbolism? There is no doubt that the answer lies in the nature of his own mind and the time to which he lived. <coughs> Quite removed, for instance, from the immediate speculations of alchemy, was that very studious, very dour, old gentleman, Father Athanasius Kirchhoff of the Society of Jesus. He was a typical example of a 17th century scholar. He was within the body of the church, but he was wedded first to knowledge. This strange scholar was one of those who recognized or felt what it meant to break through the strange pattern which was broken uh, by the Renaissance and the Reformation. Kircher immediately searched in every department and every bracket of culture for knowledge. The Museum of Kirka in Rome was for centuries a place where you could see everything from Egyptian gods to stuffed crocodiles. All knowledge was its promise, a tremendous hunger, a hunger that reached out to try to find meaning in everything. At the time of alchemy arose, this hunger was strong in European thinking. Noble princes had their cabinets, as they called them, their choice little museums, in which they had gathered the antiquities and relics of ages. Men prized everything that was new or different, or which had previously been any- inaccessible to them. They speculated on Egyptian glyphs. They tried to restore the medical system of Hippocrates. They collected and assembled Gnostic gems. They had many Indian, Chinese, Japanese idols, not as objects of worship, but as mysteries and curiosities. This opening of the door sent man's mind scurrying in every direction in search of knowledge. And he was overwhelmed by the tremendous inflow of tradition that poured in upon him the moment he was able to receive it. As soon as he could read and write, a vast pageantry of ideas moved in upon him. An alchemical symbolism leveled off almost completely as being based upon the, the tradition available to 17th century man if he possessed the faculties and means of attaining it. Scholarship became a fetish. Learning became something that even the most superficial dilatant devoted his life to. There was a tremendous upsurge in the desire to know. And what was available to the man in song, The ruin of the past. Broken monuments, this desecrated altar. Broken images, strange figures, part human, part animal. Found in the ruins of Egypt. Many incredible devices, the real meanings of which he did not know. He could not read the glyphs of Egypt, the Rosetta Stone had not been discovered. But the less he knew about these things, the more tremendous our influence was, because he then bestowed meaning upon them. And in bestowing this meaning, he was constantly drawing it out of himself. Each of these unknown objects of his contemplation called upon him, demanded something from him and also gradually revive tradition, myth, and legend in here. So here was a, a tremendous amount of raw material available to create thinking patterns in human minds. Now, another angle we shouldn't overlook is the relationship between internal patterns and external stimuli. Relations, which we may term associational. We have today in psychology association word tests. A word is spoken, and the person taking the test is supposed to instantly reply with the word that first comes to his mind, association. Now let us assume for a moment that the human being, moving from within himself, is impelled by the pressure of ideas. Now, so an idea is a pretty difficult thing that get to a look at. It doesn't have many boundaries. It doesn't have much of a shape. It is more elusive than an amoeba when it comes to trying to find a definition for it. It's a sort of a mysterious, shapeless something that has existence without appreciable uh, or measurable boundaries. There would be nothing less useful to man than a free idea in space. He wouldn't know what to do with it. He wouldn't know if he had it. He wouldn't know if he lost it. Because all that is there is something that is alive and yet has no body. And because it has no body, intellectual, emotional, or physical, it is utterly intangible, and yet it exists. Now, man will never prevent an idea to remain in that state. It is instinctively impossible for him to do so. Somewhere in the process of the emergence of thought impulse from within his own nature, he meets the outcoming or outpouring thought with a series of vessels suitable to contain it in some way. He must invest it with body. He must give this idea a form so that he can get hold of it. Perhaps he gives it a word form. Perhaps he doesn't. Much of this symbolism could be uh, almost immediately cleared If we saw a man struggling from the hieroglyphic to the hieratic period of writing, man could draw pictures of things, but he could not draw pictures of ideas. He could draw a beautiful picture of a house, but how was he going to draw a picture of love? He had to hit upon that happy thought of a heart, an were there. <laughs> <laughs> How was he going to draw a picture of veneration? Well, the only thing he could think of was to make a figure in a position of veneration. If he wanted to show uh, imagination, he had to use something uh, that would suggestive <coughs> an image or a mirror. Or some device appropriate, and yet even that, in that case, he wasn't sure how he was going to carry on uh, the transmission of this idea. The Mayas, for example, we just mentioned, had quite a problem with verbs, and verbs are always difficult in a hieroglyphical language because they represent action. Pictures do not move. Pictures do not possess action. It must be intimated in some way, a little series of footprints going along, to try to show that a man is taking a walk. The mind is just the simple device of taking a noun, or a glyph representing an object, and transforming it into a bird by adding a wing. They put a wing like the wing of a bird on the side of it to indicate action, to indicate life. But it was no longer an object, but a process or a condition in action which they sought to represent. So the development of languages shows us how these things happen. But how rapidly they happen in the development of an idea within man. The idea itself (coughs) is presented to him as well as to others. In its pure form, it is a raised energy. He must clothe. it. Now he cannot clothe it with something that he knows nothing of. To close an idea in an unknown form is inconceivable because man cannot conceive of an unknown form. Any form that he can conceive of must exist. Furthermore, he is confronted with another immediate problem. Forms are of two kinds. Forms suitable for the expression of facts on a level of existence as we know it houses and trees and dogs and cats these do not offer any great amount of problem. but man frequently wishes to represent in an idea something essentially transcendent something which is not of this world worldly he has to break the familiar pattern in order to present an unfamiliar idea how do you do it? He takes familiar things and puts them into an unfamiliar arrangement. The only method that he has. He recognizes not only that in so doing, he saves his idea from being misinterpreted, and also he creates an impact by it, which is missing in familiar things. Therefore, we can say that an ego he can use. An eagle can represent a number of things. But everyone who sees it says this is an eagle and he needs a real eagle. So what does the man do with an idea? He makes a two-headed eagle. In so doing, he has immediately broken away from reality. <coughs> Your impressionistic artist is trying to do it constantly. The man who sees the two-headed eagle immediately says to himself, there is no such a bird." therefore this does not mean the bird. It means something else. It has to. So we break through realities of a literal nature and escape into the imagery of ideas. Now every one of us growing up is in contact with the world around us. We are also under the pressure of the world within us. When we begin to think of good as small children, we can't think of good just as something good. Good has no meaning. Good has to be immediately associated with the act of goodness. <coughs> or some person or thing which we can use to appreciate goodness. So perhaps the small child in a strong and happy family environment experiences good under the symbol of parenting. Parents good to him, takes care of him, protection. That's good. Another man may interpret good under the form of fine, well-balanced dinner. It's good. Good, however, always has to come to us under symbolism because it's an abstraction. The Good Samaritan <coughs> is a <the> good deed. <coughs> now, a good deed without some symbolism by which you see what a good deed is, it means, Yet instinctively, the moment we have the term good deed come into our mind, the abstraction takes the form of some good deed that we have known, experienced, or heard about. We immediately clone this thing ourselves in a familiar term, in a familiar word picture, or a familiar form picture. We use distortion (coughs) exactly as Michelangelo used distortion to create a dynamic. If Michelangelo's figure of Moses for we would see that it was a totally disproportionate figure. Yet because of his arrangement of mass, it gives us a tremendous dynamic, which is the thing that he is trying to do, Western. So by distortion we dramatize. We escape from literality from smallness, from ordinariness, and transcend into something else. The Greek and Egyptian priest put a mask over his face. The moment he did so, he was no longer a person, he was a god. And he not only caused others to think so, but he thought so. Because of the ritual of the mask and his own belief that this sacred symbol transformed him. So that the, the action of the departure from the real, from the literal, by the use of fantasy, has been primitive in mankind and, and has been there since the beginning of time. So in our chemical symbolism, we find a group of emblems advanced, arising out of certain great archetypal patterns experienced by the human beings. And he, in his own effort to experience things superior to material facts, began to clothe instincts, impulses, ideas, inspirations from within himself, in certain forms. If he had clothed them in ordinary forms, they would have appeared ordinary. But he did not want them to appear ordinary because these stories he was telling were not ordinary, And had he placed them in mathematical ciphers, which he well knew, he would then have been on the level of chemistry itself, which is not what he wanted to do. He wanted to tell you of chemistry as an experience of consciousness, and not as a series of scientific formulas. He was working for a consciousness convention, just as Michelangelo wished to convey the terrific impact of the great mosaic lawgiver in his Moses, he wasn't trying to be an, a master of anatomy. although he had to be a master of anatomy to do what he did. He wanted to create something that was unworldly and had a, d- a dynamic strength beyond that of man. Therefore, he fashioned it in a way. That instinctively related into the experience of the person seeing it this unreality, that is, the lack or absence of complete physical integration, (coughs) something beyond physical things. (coughs) So, in his day, he did not have a great deal to work with. The alchemists, like Michelangelo, had the human body. Like certain of the great religious mystics, he had the scriptures. He used them. Like certain great artists, he had the entire art pageantry of a dozen nations. He made use of all of these things. But primarily his purpose was to tell us from the beginning (coughs) that he was transforming formulas into living patterns, clothing them in symbolism which broke Reality, broke objective <coughs> reality in the sense of the everyday, the mediocre, the commonplace, the familiar. Familiar symbols for familiar ideas. But for an idea that cannot become familiar, which is strange to us, an unfamiliar symbol, <coughs> or one that breaks the common patterns of things. The Egyptians were masters of it. And a large part of alchemical symbolism is based upon the hieroglyphics of Apollos Dios, one of the last of the old Egyptian hieroglyphic uh, compilers who left records of these old glyphs and symbols. Your emblem writers of the Middle Ages, your emblemists, did the same thing. Your emblemists took morality and changed it into symbols just as your alchemist took science into it. So the psychology of this thing is this release of the unfamiliar, which must clone itself in a form which breaks conservative recognized patterns because these patterns would drown the idea. And and from this reason, they call upon the great magical (coughs) symbolism of antiquity which in itself gave a tremendous sense of unreality. The minotaur of Crete, the human being with the head of a bull. There is an impact there. We know it cannot mean a physical, factual thing. It breaks the familiar. So does the dragon of Andromeda. It breaks the past. We are away from worldliness, we are in a different kind of universe, a universe of fantasy, a universe of fairy tale and folklore, an inner universe, a universe of subjective things, where the consciousness forms and fashions ideas. In the same way, we release them through dreams. Those so dreams must not be factual completely. They must have an element of fantasy because they represent internals rather than externals, and we can only symbolize them through time. (coughs) Elkabey, then, is trying to tell us of the experience of chemistry, of what chemistry means to an individual who who receives a total impression of it as an experience of consciousness. He experiences it as a dynamic, not as merely a science or an art. He experiences it as a transformation, or a transmutation of his own existence. Here is your mystical dimension coming in, which is probably the most important dimension in the alchemical symbolism. So <laughs> this is a sort of an elaborate preamble, but it is more or less necessary to set our pattern. So let's see what some of these symbols were. Some are familiar, some unfamiliar. But even the familiar ones mingle into an unfamiliar pattern. The unfamiliar ones become so well known to us that they seem like old friends before we get through. This symbolism derives itself from a basic authority. The authority of instinct, the authority of childhood, the authority of the primitive and direct impulses of man's own patterning procedure. So, we might not be surprised to find in alchemy two symbols almost immediately appearing. One is the king and the other the queen. Now, the king, of course, is an experience that every human being has had. The king is the boss on any level, in any way you want to look at it. The king is leadership, rulership. The king is law. The king is order. The king is power. And there isn't the most uh, mild and uh, apparently unambitious member of the proletariat <laughs> who does not secretly in himself know that he is the king. <laughs> Every man is a little king. He's modest about it sometimes, <laughs> by choice, more often by necessity, but he's the <laughs> king.
1: <laughs>
0: the king is also, of course, God. Because God represents the supreme ruler. We'll never we'll never forget that little book of Clare's Day, God and Father. <laughs> Much in common. But the king is also, in a mysterious way, our instinctive recognition of a power that reposes within the universe, within ourselves. The king is life. Rules everything. The king is power, life, through life. The king is the universe in which we live, and we are his subjects. The king is spirit, the master of the great core of the universe. The king is nearly always beyond and above and superior. The king is heaven in China. Therefore the king it represents a great positive polarity. The king is not only something we fear, something we must obey whether we will or not, it is something furthermore that secretly we admire when we are happy. We wish the king would leave us alone, but when we get in trouble, we rush to him for help. We do not like to have him us, but we are constantly hoping he will save us. The king is will, the sovereignty of an active agent in the universe. Now the opposite formality to this is the queen. And the queen has always been associated with the broad concept of creation itself. Father God and Mother Nature. The queen represents, to a very large measure, the entire environmental life of the individual. The king is self. The queen is everything else. The queen is the universe. Which man self desires to possess. Therefore, every move we make reminds us of Gates' immortal, immortal lines, the eternal feminine lures us on. The eternal feminine is the unknown. And to conquer and capture and to possess the unknown is the great ambition of man. And science fiction, as we have it today, with all kinds of fantastic stories about other dimensions and rays and energies and (laughs) weird creatures from other worlds, they're all the story of the king searching for the queen, uh, seeking to possess the unknown. Most uh, peoples have referred to their own lands, their continents, their homes, as their mother. The Mother Earth, Mother India, Mother China, the Motherland. Occasionally, some nations refer to it as the Fatherland. And here again, we come into some intricate symbolism. And most countries that have a Fatherland have a psychology that is quite different from those that have a Motherland. You mustn't forget that these things work together in a very important symbolism. So in the great alchemical empire we have the king and queen ruling over the entire picture. Now the king comes back to us again from one of the most mysterious mm. and enigmatical pursuits of mankind, and that is the game of chess. Because in the game of chess, we are not only playing the game of war, but we are playing the game of life. Now, so in the game of life, the queen can be taken, but not the king. In other words, the king is never captured in a game of chess. He is placed in a condition or a position in which he cannot move without jeopardy, and that constitutes checkmate and is the end of the game. She you can't take him. You destroy him by preventing him from moving. You cannot take him away. as you think a little bit, you begin to see how that plays into another idea. Very intriguing. You cannot capture spirit, but you destroy its power, but you prevent its motion. You cannot destroy truth. But you prevent its power when you no longer permit it to have circulation, or to be disseminated, or to be spread, or interpreted. You destroy things by destroying their action, but you cannot destroy the reality of anything. This is always the case. So we have, as in China, Father Heaven and Mother Earth. And you have man created between these by the action one upon the other. Forming the great Chinese triad, Heaven, Earth, and Man. So, what is man? In the alchemical tradition, man is Mercury. Now, you may not all recognize yourself as this delightful little character with wounds on his heels and on his head. But, and carrying, of course, the celebrated Caduceus, usually dressed in the garb of a Roman soldier. Very important part of symbolism. But Mercury is the beloved son of the king and queen. Now when you make the king and queen an alchemical symbolism, you have several ways of doing it. One way is to show the king as a human body the crown, but instead of the face. The face of the sun. And the queen, a woman, with a royal crown, but instead of her face, the face of the moon. So that the king and queen become the sun of the moon. And the sun of moon in alchemy are gold and silver. But not the gold and silver that we see, says Bessonus Valentine to Valentina, but an invisible gold and The two precious rulers of the metals, the king and queen of the world of the metals. Therefore, we have another mysterious point, namely that Mercury is the son of gold and silver. He is the child. Not only as the deity, but as the element. Now, what is mercury? Mercury is quicksilver, and was so called. Mercury is Hermes, from the root of her fire. Mercury is the most volatile and the most catalytic of the elements in the alchemical symbolism. Mercury is the only element that can accept into itself all elements and reconcile them. So man becomes the power, the only element or the only matter which can bring about within itself the fusing of the metals or to act as the common denominator of metals. And yet it is not mercury as we see it, but a volatile spiritual mercury that must be used in this history. So we have a mysterious combination of king, queen, and sun. That is, as oil, composed of sun, S-U-N, moon, and mercury. <coughs> now, another way of calling the sun, moon, and mercury is to say salt, uh, say sulfur, salt, and gypsum. And these are formulas. For all of the great achievements, the great stone of the wise is composed of salt, sulfur, and mercury, also the universal medicine. Though so you have learned that the king is something that can never be taken, the king is the absolute ruler, but things can happen to him. He can appear to die he can be destroyed or attacked by his own son but he cannot actually be killed we'll find out a little more about what can happen to him mm-hmm. in the alchemical game of chess a little later at this moment we also have another symbol that presents itself to us and that is what is called the Hermetic Anderjan this is the royal figure the king and queen has one person with two faces One male and one female, and a single crown over the double head. Here we have heaven and earth as one. When so represented, the symbol of Mercury is usually in the middle of the body of this combined androgenic creature. So we now have gold and silver undivided. We have God and nature undivided. We have the sun and moon united in the hermetic marriage of the planets. We now have the god Ishvara concept of India, the father-mother god, undivided. This actually represents the supreme representation of the king and queen, (coughs) inasmuch as it represents the mystery of the great energy itself upon which all alchemical mutation depends. This mystery is called Azoth. And Azoth is the tremendous power residing in metals by which the transmutation can take place or by which they can be changed or by which their lives may be augmented. Seeing the king and queen now, then, as one being, heaven and earth, representing this uh, this as the solitary and inevitable unity of God itself, we have almost the symbol of the (coughs) tetractus, or the basic triad of life, the king, the queen, and the child, the 47th proposition of Euclid, with a slightly different (coughs) presentation. The next thing we have to realize is that the king, by what we know, represents spirit. And the queen represents matter. And mercury represents soul. Spirit, body, soul. When spirit, body, and soul are brought together into a compound, that compound is called form. Matter is essentially shapeless. Spirit is essentially. <coughs> but when Mercury imposes the archetype upon them, they become a form. Therefore, Mercury was called Hermes Trismegistus, the thrice greatest, the master of the three. And this mysterious power of Hermes is man. Man is manis. Manis is mind. Mind is more, however, than the intellect that we know. it, So we will take a picture from one of the alchemical writings and we will see Mercury carrying in one hand the sun and in the other hand the moon. He is the juggler of the sun and moon and he is so represented on a deck of tarot cards. He is the juggler. And Mercury in this position, (coughs) bears upon him, or associated with him, the five symbols of the planets, with himself in the middle. That is, the five planets other than the sun and moon known to the ancients. Sometimes Mercury is represented seated in a cave, with six other figures around him, with planets, symbols for heads. Mercury, as we go further into the symbolism, obviously represents one thing in it, and that is what we call the soul. The soul, which is the juggler of the sun and moon, and which is the ground of reconciliation between spirit and matter, which is the power to arbitrate the conflict of consciousness and form, or body. Consciousness in body would die. Body and consciousness could not exist. But soul is the bridge. Soul is the mortar or the catalyst, The agent which is the moderator between extremes. All conscious energy moving into form moves through soul and is transformed. All bodily energy Moving inward toward consciousness passes through soul and is again transformed. Soul is the modifier, the agent, by which all things are adapted to either their internal or external objectives. So we come again, on a psychological level, to the problem of the introvert and the extrovert. The extrovert represents consciousness moving through soul, into body, and into its manifestation outwardly. The introvert is energy moving inward from the objective parts of the consciousness through the soul to the subjective parts. But the soul has to occupy the middle distance because it represents the interpreter of all things. It represents the power which transforms all energies into useful, understandable, or acceptable forms. Therefore, the soul becomes a magician. who carries a wand, the wand that is sometimes twisted with the serpent, the symbol of the malus. The soul is therefore also the messenger of the gods, the Greek concept of Hermes, or the Roman Mercury. The messenger is the one who carries the will of the gods to the world, and therefore, in the alchemical symbolism, it was useful, necessary or proper to represent him by the caduceus, which represented the cerebral, spinal, and autonomic nervous systems, which are the carriers or messengers of their energy. So, consciousness controlling its body, as mercury, its son, to represent it. The body, man's outer life, learning, studying. Gaining wisdom and knowledge, seeking to enrich internals, must send this externally accumulated material into consciousness through the messenger, Mercury. And the messenger in this case is identical with the little squirrel that used to fly up and down, or run up and down the ecclesial tree in the Otenic Mysteries, carrying the scandals of men to the gods and the scandals of the gods to men. <laughs> it is the messenger power, the communicator. Now, is it that uh, the alchemist felt uh, that this Mercury uh, was able to accept and interpret all metals, or must devour or eat up metals, before it was possible to release the soul of the metal? The answer to the situation was very definite. The alchemist insisted that the metals, which represent on one level of thinking, phenomena, or the forms of things as they appear to be, based on <laughs> unpurified, can never be accepted into consciousness. They can never be used to build consciousness. Because before any of these objective things can be useful or necessary and vital to an internal subjective, they must be transformed the base forms of these metals must die by being absorbed into mercury. And after they have been absorbed and have been reduced to a completely impersonal state, only then does the soul use them to augment its own power. So in one alchemical symbolism we find hermes or mercury devouring the metals, eating them. Just as John in Revelation ate the little book of knowledge. So the soul devouring the metals, experience, transforms them into soul power. And the soul power is, of course, the regenerated, reborn metals. Thus we can say what happens to us in life, what we call experience, is not important. It is our acceptance and understanding of that experience that is important. And that experience passes through a transformation within our own soul life. It contributes nothing to our improvement. There are people that have things happen to them every day, and never learn anything. It isn't what happens, it's the power of the soul to transform all external things that makes possible the adaptation of knowledge
1: through internal enlightenment.